Alright. Do you want to pray? Yes. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this day, God, and I just pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and give us wisdom, and Lord, I pray that we would bless one another with the things that we say and edify each other. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, today, I wanted to teach on election and predestination. And uh, this is actually going to be a, a part of a larger series, I guess you would call it, that, we're, that I want to do on... Uh, just basically Calvinism and things because uh, uh, we all kind of know what the state of the American church is and basically the, not just the American church but the church throughout the world. We've got friends that are in Africa and they and they uh, tell us stories about what's going on in the Church of Africa and uh, uh, in a lot of ways what's happening, what happens in the church in, in America spreads out to the rest of the world. And... Um, in my opinion, the reason why a lot of that is, is because of our doctrines. Uh, especially, you know, our, our doctrines of just easy believism and just come to Jesus and, you know, he's going to bless you and give you everything that you need, everything that you want. And, and uh, you know, and Jesus is there for you to serve you and to feed you and to do everything for you and things. And so, basically, because we, we have taken... Um, some parts of scripture and not the whole of scripture I think we've gotten a wrong view of what Jesus is really like and uh, and so really that that is our our main reason that we that we want to teach against this stuff because I think it's basically it's just that we as believers we as the 21st century church we need to get back to the Word of God and what the Word of God says not what what our preachers say, what makes us feel good, and things like that. We need to see what the Bible says. And so, um, and basically, uh, theology is, is kind of like a river. You know how rivers will start at a main source, right? All rivers have a main source from which they start at. And then from there, they just kind of branch off. They're kind of like trees in that sense. And uh, just say like, uh, like you can say like you can find a tributary or a branch that flows off the Mississippi and it may be a big thing that flows off like a river in itself or it may just be a, a small brook, but its source is the Mississippi, right? And in the same way, the, you know, parts of the Nile River will never be parts of the Mississippi River. Does that make sense? And that's the way it is with theology. Theology has a source from which it flows from. Every doctrine that you want to talk about, every, every bit of theology that you want to talk about has a source from which it flows. And from out of that shoots all kinds of other smaller doctrines or tributaries and things like that. And uh, the, the, the category, when we talk about Calvinism, it, it contains so much stuff. I mean, we're talking about predestination. We're talking about election. We're talking about once saved, always saved. So there's all these these other branches and these outflows from it. And so it's really, really challenging to talk about it and stuff. And it, it's really challenging to teach on and, and, and things. But And, and again, I, I think about so many believers who, who like, well, you know, I don't care about all that theology stuff. I just want to love Jesus or I just want to sing worship songs and, and just love Jesus and go to church and things like that. Well, again, just like we've talked about in the past, anytime you say, anytime you have any thought concerning God, if you think, well, I think God is good, or I think God is angry, I think God is, is the God of Mormons, I think God is an alien somewhere, that is all theology, right? 
And so for someone to say that, you know, I don't want to, I don't like studying theology. What you're saying is you don't like to think about God. Because theology, all theology is, is what we think about who God is and stuff. And so as believers, um, I feel that it's important for us to study theology. And I think that there's something wrong with us if we, if we say that we're Christians, if we say that we love God, but I don't want to study about God. I don't want to learn things about God. I, I, just want to, I just want to love Him. I remember someone told us one time, if you can't tell me what God is like in a paragraph or two, then I don't have time for it. And basically, that's the way we are. We're so busy and caught up in our own lives that we don't have time to learn about the things of God. And, you know, it's basically the Bible, again, just like the cliche goes, is God's love letter to us. And, you know, think about any relationship that you've ever pursued. Any relationship that you've ever pursued, you pursued because there was something that piqued your interest in that person, right? Whether it's a friend, whether it's boyfriend, whether it's a girlfriend, whatever, any kind of relationship that you wanted to be a part of was because there was something about that person that you wanted to know more about. Does that make sense? And so again, how can we say that, how can we call ourselves Christians if we don't know, want to know more about who God is and to know who he's, he, what he's like and how he operates, right? And so, um, turn to uh, Romans eight twenty eight. Just kind of want to look at some verses considering election. Now, election and predestination are actually two different things, um, even though they're closely related. Um, election, when, when we talk about election, we're talking about who, right? Who God elects, who God calls, and who God chooses. And then when we talk about predestination, we're talking about why. Why did God choose them? What for what purpose and so okay? So again, they're two different things, but they're closely closely related. And in Romans 8, 28 through 30, it says, uh, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined become conformed to the Im image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Turn to another place in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And so there are, there are scriptures in the New Testament that if you just take them on the surface, it looks like, yes, before God even created the world before the foundation of the world God chose who was going to be saved and he chose who was not going to be saved and uh, and that's that's what Calvinism teaches they teach that God chose and as a matter of fact I was looking at a website called Christianity.com and it says it's under the title what does the phrase God's sovereignty really mean and it says quote nothing is too difficult for him and he orchestrates and determines everything it says, everything that is going to happen in your life, in my life, in America, and, 
and throughout the world. God's providence, uh, God's sovereignty provides us with comfort because God is sovereign and he loves you. Listen to this. Nothing will ever come into your life that he does not either decree or allow. And basically, every like to me, that, that has flowed into the church to more or less degree in pretty much all of our thinking, right? And again, there are scriptures that, that, that if you read them and you just leave it on the surface, it seems to agree with that. Let me read a couple of quotes by John Calvin. Um, now he talks about how he, he dealt with the subject of election and predestination in his book, The Institutes of Christian Religion. And he says, that is that from among men, God has chosen to salvation those whom he pleased and he has rejected the others without our knowing why, except that it's, uh, um, except that its reason is hidden in his external counsel. And there's another place that says, um, It says uh, that before the beginning of the world, we were both ordained to faith and also elected to the inheritance of heavenly life. Hence arises an impregnable, impregnable security. In other words, you have a security in God that can't be taken away. It says the father who gave us to the son as his peculiar possession is stronger than all and will not suffer us to be plucked out of his hand. And so again, this is a teaching that is in the church and like I said, if you look at some scriptures, it seems that it might be saying that. But then if you look at other scriptures, other scriptures contradict it completely. Right? And also when you read those seeming scriptures, if you read them in context, it makes much more sense. Right. But they're often just pulled out of the, the book or the chapter. And, and that's the thing. So like when you're following a stream, when, you follow, when you're following a particular doctrine, you have to trace it all the way back to the floodwaters, back to its, the source and see where it's coming from and stuff. And um, Calvinists teach that before the world was created, before Adam and Eve or any other human, human, God knew every person who was ever going to be born and God decided who would and who would not be saved or damned for all eternity. And that since he is sovereign, everything that has happened, is happening, or ever will happen is according to his will, and nothing can happen outside of his will. And I think, like, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've heard people say stuff like that. And the question is, is that true? And what we do is when we say that, we major on the good stuff. Yeah, before the world was created, God chose you to be saved right before the world was created god planned that you were going to be born again and that you were going to be saved well the thing is is there's there's two sides to that coin if god chose every person that was going to be saved for all eternity he also chose who was not going to be saved right chosen to damnation right because you can't have one without the other it's, you know, it's like if, if, if I'm choosing a baseball team and I choose, I choose Ruth and I choose Daniel and I, I, and, and I don't choose Amy and I don't choose Cindy, I am excluding them, right? If God knew before the foundation of the world every single person that he was ever going to create and then he chose out of that group of people the people who were going to be saved, then by the other side of the coin, he was choosing who was going to be sent to hell for all eternity. And saying, and the thing is, too, is saying that it is God's will uh, that to do that is 
explicitly contradictory with the Bible. And so what? they come up with terms like, cause, because the Bible says that God wills that none perish, but that all receive eternal life. Right. So they have to create multiple wills for God, his sovereign will and his, um, and his like, what it, what's it called, desired will or something like that? Yeah. Permissive? Well, you got his permissive will and his decorative will. Yeah, his, that's his, it. his will that everybody knows about, and then and then he has a secret will that nobody knows about. And so we're actually going to talk about that also. So he has a split personality. Is that yeah, <laughs> you know, he doesn't and, really know. And what so, he wants. and this is the thing, and that's the thing. People will say these things, and people are taught stuff like that, and so they say things, and it's like, but you, have you ever really thought about that? that God would have have you ever really thought God is a God of love? Every good and perfect gift comes from God, and, and God is love, right? But yet, before someone was created, before they ever had a chance to do anything good, before they ever had a chance to do anything evil, God already chose that person to go to hell, right? And there's no way, there's no getting around it. And most Christians also believe in an eternal hell, you yeah. know, including... And wait. Right. Right. Which is a different subject. Yeah. But, but like, that's just like choosing them for an eternal hell for nothing that they've ever done. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and that's the thing too, is when people say that God is sovereign, that means that for, for a lot of people, just like that, that quote that we read from Christianity.com, it means that every single action that I do has God been ordained by God. Right. What does this mean? That means if I mistreat my wife... That was ordained by God. If, if I spill hot coffee on myself, it's ordained by God. But think of it in a larger context. If this is true, if God ordained, if God planned for every action to happen, if God is truly sovereign in that sort of way, then everything in history is dire directly attributable to God, which means Hitler was ordained by God, which means Charles Manson was ordained by God, right? Which means every rape, every murder that has ever been committed by man was ordained by God. If you believe the Bible teaches that, I, I, I don't understand that, right? There are people who actually believe that that's true. How can you believe that's true and believe that God is good, God is a God of justice? God created us in his image to be like him. If he created us to be like him, are we to, to, on the outside, pretend like we're good and do good things, but have evil intentions? And like, well, but you know, you know what I'm saying? And again, it is like a split personality. And, it, and that's why it can't be one or the other. It has to be one or the other. It can't be both of them and stuff. Okay? Um, and sure, God is sovereign. God is able to do anything that he wants to do, right? right? God has the power, he has the ability, and he he's able to do anything, but he, but he operates. We see it over and over through the word of God from Genesis to Revelation that God operates from his goodness. God operates from his love, right? And there's no way that you can jive that with, with, with Hitler and, and the concentration camps and stuff like that. Um, it, it, you know, and, and the thing is, is all throughout history, there's this, been this battle or not all throughout history. It actually started like in the fourth century through Constantine uh, or not through Constantine, through Augustine. Basically, everything that we know is as Calvinism is actually Augustinianism. 
Calvin just took what Augustine wrote, who in Augustine, by the way, and we might talk about this later. I don't know if we'll have time to talk about it or, or not. But Augustine was actually a Gnostic for 10 years. And the Gnostics taught indeterminism. The, the Gnostics taught that you did not have a free will, but that everything that you did in life was preordained for you, right? And, and so Augustine got saved. And then, and actually, if you read his earlier writings, they have nothing, they, they talk about your free will and that you have the will to do whatever and that you are free and stuff like that. But later, later as, you know, as he aged or grew or whatever, he, he turned back to his Gnostic roots and started teaching determinism, predeterminism in that you don't have a free will. Everything that you do is, is ordered. Everything that you do is pre, preordained and stuff. And so, um, and that's the thing. There's been this battle since the fourth century between Calvinists and non-Calvinists and, and, and things. And it's like, you know, if, if you're Calvinist, you know, God, God has willed these things, right? And it's like a Calvinist should never be upset. A Calvinist should never... And that, that's the thing to me, that the whole Calvinist scheme is fatalism, right? Why, why care about the lost? Because the lot is God's will. Why, why witness to people who are lost? Well, you know, if God's chosen them, they will be saved. If God hasn't chosen them, they won't be saved. Why, why do humanitarian efforts to like the pe people in Africa who have no water or who have no food? Hey, it's God's will, right? And that's the thing. You, all, all doctrine has to be, has to be followed to its logical conclusion. What is it actually teaching, right? And. Uh, So Calvinists teach unconditional election, election. They choose that God chooses individuals to be saved and that he, he chooses individuals not to be saved. And it's simply by his divine grace. And no one knows why. And, and they'll say things like, well, who are you? To, what is the potter to say to the clay or the clay to say to the potter and, and things like that? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're already in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we agree with that, right? You can't save yourself. And that's the thing, too, is, is anytime you start talking against Calvinism, the first thing that they do is they call you a Pelagian. And Pelagians taught, or Pelagian taught that you could save yourself right he taught that you know that you had free will but he took it too far in that you know by your works you could be justified by your works you could save yourself we don't teach that we know that salvation is the gift of god and we know that you can't even come to god unless he draws you right god draws us by his holy spirit but then once god does that and i believe this is what i believe i believe that the holy spirit is in the world just like it talks about romans 1 how god is revealing himself through the world so god has revealed himself through nature and not only that but he sent his holy spirit and so i believe that the holy spirit is always wooing people I know before I got saved, the Holy Spirit was wooing me because several people that were completely unrelated came into my life and they were, they were, they were 
um, they were preaching to me, right? And they were, they were sharing the gospel with me and stuff. And they were completely unrelated. And so it was the Holy Spirit sending people to share the gospel with me. And so God has left, and not only that, but there's the church. And we as the church are a witness in the earth too, right? We are Christ's body, right? Jesus is here no longer, so we as his body are here to reflect him and to show what he's like to this lost and dying world and stuff. And so God is wooing people. No one comes to the Father unless he draws them. But I believe that God is drawing everyone. I mean, how many people have never heard the gospel, especially here in America, right? And so God is trying to draw people, but once, but in his drawing, you have a part to play too. You can either accept it or you can reject it, right? If someone comes with to you with a check for a million dollars and says, here, you can have this money, what? then the responsibility is no longer theirs, right? You can either take that check and deposit it in the bank or you can tear it up and throw it in the trash or you can just neglect it. It's a free gift either way. It is a free gift. It's not like you work for it if you deposit it. (laughs) Exactly. And so, and that's what Calvinists teach. They teach, well, if you do anything like believing or repenting, then, then you're working for your salvation. No. God has called you by the Holy Spirit. Then you, by faith, either choose to believe or you choose not to believe. And it specifically contrasts faith with a works. Right. Which is important because, um, you know, because... Yeah, it, it doesn't contrast, oh, God, God's election with works. It right. contrasts God, um, faith with works. Yeah. And so, um, and in Romans 9, verse 15, we won't, talk, we won't turn there, but he says, and this is, this is a scripture that Calvinists quote all the time, and that, and that when they're saying that, well, you know, God just chooses who he chooses, and he doesn't choose who he doesn't choose. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And uh, turn to Exodus chapter 33, because we're going to look at, again, what we don't do so many times is we'll read a quote from the Old Testament in the New Testament, but we don't trace it back to the source, right? If you don't trace it back to the source, you're never going to really understand what they were trying to say. Because when they quoted that scripture in the New Testament, they had in their minds what was happening in the Old Testament when it happened originally, right? Exodus what? Exodus 33. Verse 1. So this is after the people, this is when Moses led the people out of Egypt, and this is after they had sinned with the golden calf. Okay? In verse 1 it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. So God is still... God is angry at them for the golden calf, right? And But even in his anger, he's still being merciful to them. And he's still saying, okay, I'm mad at you, but go up to the promised land and I'll protect you and, and I'll drive out the enemies and stuff like that. But I'm not going to be with you in my presence because I'm angry at you. It says, when the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. 
Now therefore put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. Then the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Um, start at, uh, let's see. chapter 34 verse 1 so we see the story God the people sinned against God with the golden calf and God still says go up to the promised land and I'm going to drive out the enemies but I'm not going to be with you because I'm angry with you and in 34 verse 1 it says now the Lord said to Moses cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered so be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So Moses cut out the two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took the two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called on the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Look at this. And this is where they quoted that in in, um, in Romans. He says, He keeps his loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, and transgressions and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And so, so this is, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. But so Calvinists, they take this to mean that God's going to just have mercy on anybody that he wills. And it's this, and nobody can understand the the ones that he takes mercy on. Nobody, there's no rhyme or reason to it, but it's just it's just how it is, right? And stuff. But there, all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, you see cause and effect, right? And this is why, like, even as a young believer, I've never been able to believe in this whole Calvinistic thing, because if you read the Bible, it's not about you know, and then God made this happen, and God made that happen, and then God made... It's not about that at all. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about the choices that people make and God's response to those choices, right? Even in the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve, gave them everything, doing all these things, tells them there's only this one thing that you can't do, eat off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But other than that, you can do anything that you want to. What did they do? They disobeyed him. Right? And so what happened? There were consequences and stuff. And so the book, the Bible is a book about actions and consequences. And how can it be a book about actions and consequences if God has already planned for everything to happen? If God, in fact, caused everything to happen? God caused them to worship the golden calf and then he's going to punish them for it? Right? be angry. God causes people to sin all their lives and then he's going to send them to hell? And yet you can somehow reconcile this in your mind as that's a good God? A just God even. Right. And again, he made us in his image and in his likeness. So the way that we think 
in essence, is the way that God thinks, right? The reason why we we are a people, and again, sin mars that, right? right? Yes. But the reason why we love justice is why? Because God put that in right. our hearts. And the Bible talks about how even God puts a conscience in unbelievers' hearts. And so even unbelievers have some sort of a conscience because God put it there. We love music because God loves music, right? We love beauty because God loves beauty and stuff. And so the way that we think in the purest form yes. is the way that God thinks. And so how can we, if we read the Bible, if we've studied his ways, think that God is this contradictory being? And, you know, God, the, like in the New Testament, Jesus sometimes in a couple t uh, scenarios uh, compared you know, earthly fathers to, to, to our heavenly father and like the same sort of likeness. If your earthly father is being evil or willing to give you bread, you know, what would your heavenly father? Which is really good because yeah. that shows that even more, even more if so. we yeah. can be wicked, if we can do more wicked things and we can hurt people that we love, is God that way? No, he's even greater than we could possibly be or possibly even imagine. And even our, what goodness God has given us is still insufficient to his goodness. Yeah. And it's like, it's just a shadow. our justice even yeah. is just a shadow. Right. It, it, it's like, and the idea that, um, that God's justice would be lesser, God's love would be lesser. Right. Yeah. And turn to Isaiah 55. Because this is a chapter, or this is a verse that's used over and over by Calvinists. Because here's the thing. They cannot justify their beliefs by the word of God. And so, and that, okay, let's just read it. Isaiah 55 verse 1. It says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Now, does this sound like God is excluding anyone? It says, everyone. Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And by the way, this, I think Jesus had this in mind when that scripture in John seven thirty seven, where it talks about on the last day of the feast, Jesus said, um, "Everyone who who thirsts, come to me, for I'm the living water." And mm -hmm. you know, that's not right, but you know, basically that's the gist. I think he was thinking about this verse. It says, "Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy?" Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Now, if you know anything about the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is written to a people who over and over have turned their backs on God. It's written to a book of people who are about to go into exile because they've turned their backs on God. They've worshiped false idols. They've sacrificed their, their children to Molech. And, and they've turned away constantly against God. And God is over and over in the book of Isaiah warning them and telling them that the, the judgment that's going to come on them. And so in, in uh, verse 2 of Isaiah 50, or verse 3, he says, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation that you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now, again, why would God tell people to call upon him or to seek him who can't? If they've not been elected to seek him or been elect elected to call on him, how can they seek him, right? 
or if you've been elected. Now, and again, if, if, if you feel like I've been elected, I've been chosen by God, why do I need to study a Bible? Why do I need to pray? Why do I need to go to church? Why do I need to do anything? I'm God's elected one. Nothing can happen to that. Nothing can change that, right? It says, uh, Seek the Lord, verse 6, while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Can the wicked forsake his way? And the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do you see that? Someone who is unrighteous, if he turns to God, if he forsakes his way, God will abundantly pardon him. See, this is, this is the Bible. This is the word of God. This is not a doctrine that man has invented. This is God, right? God says anybody. You know, we, we've read uh, in Ezekiel 18 before, you know, this, like if someone is, is in their wickedness and they turn from their wickedness, I will receive him. Or if someone who's righteous turns from their righteousness, I will not, right? God is a God of cause and effect. Yes, he woos us. Yes, he calls us. Yes, he draws us by his Holy Spirit. But then we have the choice of how we're going to respond to him. And that's constantly God's attitude, especially with like right. Israel. Yeah. Like it's always, if you come, I will forgive you. I will cleanse you of your iniquities. I yeah. will make you clean. Right. And it's, it's, it's a constant thing. It's not like an occasional thing. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not like, and, and there are plenty of opportunities for him to just say, okay, now you've been chosen for, for, for like to not follow. Like it's not, that's not the kind of attitude that it's approached with. It's All approached right. with the attitude of humble yourself. All right. Give yeah. up your idols, give up, you know. Yeah. And so, and that's, this is the, 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 the mouth of the, the river, right? The mouth of the river, the, the source of the river is God's goodness and it's his love and it's God giving you free will to choose. God does not want robots, right? God, God, the whole reason why God created Adam in the garden was for someone to have fellowship with him. A robot cannot have fellowship with you. Someone that you create to do good things, someone that you have predetermined and that you have programmed to do good all their lives cannot serve you, right? Uh, you, we've told you guys the story about when, when Amy and I were in that church where they felt like husbands need to put their wives under the thumb and the husband's the authority and the wife has to obey every single command from the husband and stuff. She hated my guts and I hated her guts because you can't love Someone that's serving you out of fear, out of, out of, you know, I have to, right? And you can't love someone that's forcing you to be like that. We cannot truly love God unless we have free will. And that's the mystery. That's the beauty of what God did. When God created man in the Garden of Eden, he said, you have free will. You can choose me or you cannot choose me. And it was a risk that he took. God took a risk when he created man with free will. And he took that risk knowing, and, and, and God does have foreknowledge, right? And, and at some point, we'll talk about what he knows, what he doesn't know, what, but he's got the ability to know everything, right? And so God knew when he created man with free will that he was taking a chance that that man might not love him. 
It's like with your children. When you have children, you raise them, you do the best that you can. You try to try to be a good parent to them. You try to give them what they need and, and try to train them in the best way that you know how. But you don't know <laughs> at the end of the day when that child moves out and stuff, if they might hate your guts or they might love you, right? And stuff. And that's that's the nature of free will. It is a chance. But that's, that's the beauty of God. God is not some... God, God is not a micromanager. And if you've ever met any micromanager, they are somebody who operates out of fear and out of a need to control. God has no need to control. And if you've ever met someone that's truly powerful, they don't have to control you. They don't, someone that's truly powerful doesn't strut around. Like, I, I, I love the, the Chosen shows that we've been watching about Jesus and how he's all so, so humble and so, so down to earth, I guess you would say, and stuff. And he's not like this imperious, you know, hey, bow your knee before me like the Pharisees were, right? The Pharisees controlled out of fear. Fear is always, or control is always based in fear. God is not afraid of us. God is not afraid of what any man will do. God's not afraid what the angels would do and stuff. Even And Satan turned against him and stuff. God is not afraid and he doesn't operate through fear. He operates through love. And he doesn't have to control because he is all-powerful. And because if he wanted, and he has the right. God has the right to have smoked every single one of us at some time in our lives. But he didn't because he loves. And he, he, wants, he, he wants us to follow him because that's truly what's best for us. Amen? Can I just say, uh, just looking back at our past and our early marriage when I was doing everything for you and you know, obedient submission without my heart being in it, and I would speculate that you probably didn't like it because I was, you knew that I was doing it because I had to right. and you, you, you knew I was doing it because I was obligated to but I wasn't yeah. really doing it because I wanted to yeah. and so that probably didn't make you feel very loved or whatever even though you know it's like it's 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 was presented as this is what you want Dean right. you know you want your wife to submit and you want to make her do all these things but really you weren't getting just free will love from yeah. me. You were getting obligatory love. And even though you were doing everything possible to try to please me, you know, how, how does it? There's no way it could please you if I know it's not coming from my heart. And I don't know how to say this delicately, but when I was before I got saved, I was in the Marines and stuff. I mean, we we would go to strip clubs and stuff. But even before I got saved, the realization came to me is that. This person can be smiling at me and acting like they're dancing for me and that I'm the best thing in the world, but truly they hate my guts, yeah. right? And it's not done because they like me. It's done because they want my money and it's done for selfish reasons. And that's the whole thing about prostitution, about pornography, about, about strippers and stuff like that. They are not doing that because they like you or they think you're good looking or whatever, they're doing that because they want your money. Yeah. It is not, and, and that's the way it is. God does not, he did not create us to serve him in that way. Yeah. And any kind of service in that way is not true service. It's, true it's, it's slavery. Yeah. We are set free from slavery. Right. 
So starting at verse 6 again, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And again, God is talking to a wicked people. And he's urging them. He's calling to them. He's trying to get them to turn from their wicked ways. And he's telling them, if you do, I'll I'll bless you. If you do turn from your wicked ways, I'll, I'll give you all these things and stuff. And he says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon Look at this in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your, or your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the, he- for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And again, this scripture, it was quoted by Calvin, and it's been quoted by Calvinists ever since. And, the, and what they say is like, when, when you start talking about, well, I can't understand how God would be like this, how he would say... I love everybody and I want everyone to be saved, but you secretly judge, you secretly condemned millions of people to hell. And they'll say, well, God, my ways are not your thoughts and my ways are higher than your thoughts. The opposite of what it's saying. In right. And if you look at the context of that scripture, he's saying, you know, you guys have been wicked. You guys have been sinful, but I will forgive you. And what it's saying is that your mercy and your love are so incomprehensible. I can't mm-hmm. understand how you could be so forgiving towards the people who've hated you. And it's like when I got saved, I mean, I, it just used to blow me away. It's like, God, how could you forgive me? Mm-hmm. You know? And it's like when you look at the things that you've done and you know that he has forgiven you despite the fact that you've cursed him to his face, despite the fact that you've said, no, I'm not going to follow you. I don't want any part of you. And yet he still says, come to me and I will forgive you. That is mind blowing. And that is so far above our ways. That's what it's saying. It's not saying God is this inscrutable God that you'll never understand. He gave us his word so that we would understand him. So that we would know how he is. So that we know, would know who he is. God created man so that he could have someone that would know him. Who could, that he would have someone that would understand his ways and stuff. In, uh, in Exodus 33, Moses prayed to him, show me your ways. Um, turn to Proverbs 28, 9. We're just going to look at some scriptures. Because that is not at all what the scripture is trying to say. It's not trying to say God is this inscrutable God and you'll never understand his ways. You'll never understand. And now I don't mean that like every time you read the Bible, you're going to discover new things about him, right? And that's what eternity is going to be. Eternity is going to be an eternity of finding out more and more about him. But that's what marriage is, right? You get married to someone because you want to know more about them. You, you develop a friendship with somebody because you want to know more about that person. What makes this person tick? Why is this person so cool, right? And also, let's not forget, like, the secrets of heaven have been given for you to know. Right. Mm, exactly. That's what Jesus said. Uh, and in Proverbs 25, verse 9, we're just going to skip through some scriptures. Um, Proverbs what? 25, 25 verse, verse 9. Uh, I think that's... Or, yeah, I'm, that's the... I missed that one. Uh, Psalm 67 verse 1. Again, that's the whole reason why God created man. Because the angels... See, you know, the Bible talks about how the angels, angels look and wonder 
on our salvation because they can't understand it, right? The angels can't understand salvation because they've never needed a savior. They've never sinned, right? They've never know. They don't know what it's like to fall and have to have to be redeemed. In Psalm 67, verse 1, it says, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Why? Verse 2, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all the nations. And so over and over in the Bible, um, it talks about scriptures. Um, I'm going to kind of skip through some. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 5, this is uh, in verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So God is in the business of revealing himself. God desires to reveal himself. Just like you said, there's that one scripture that says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. So yes, God does in some senses hide things from us in that he doesn't make everything obvious, right? Just like when Jesus taught, he taught in parables. Why did Jesus teach in parables? So that people would say, why? Right? I mean, because, and sometimes, honestly, I look at our teaching in the church today and I wonder if maybe we're making it too easy, you know? Jesus would teach people a parable, then he'd leave and not explain the parable to them and stuff. If we did that in modern churches, we'd have a riot and stuff. But the reason why Jesus taught in parables was he taught in parables so that you would say, why? What, what, what are you trying to say here? You know what I'm saying? I mean, have you ever said something to somebody that was kind of obscure and they're like, oh, okay, whatever. Or someone said something obscure to you and they just say it and then they, they like kind of like walk away and say, and you're just like, no, 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 what are you trying to say? Right? And so God does sometimes, God puts things there that are in some senses hidden for us to dig them out. Right? Because, it's, again, it's that pursuit of love. It's like that trying to get to know somebody. It's like you want to know their secrets. You want to know what makes them tick. And it's not just readily available to everyone. You know what I'm saying? It's like the woman in Song of Solomon ser um, uh, searching for her love. Like, because uh, like, she was searching around for him and couldn't find him. And, um, you know, was looking in the garden or whatever. And, you know. Uh -huh. Was seeking yeah. out her love. Uh -huh. That's yeah. good. Yeah. That was good. Uh, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at some scriptures that the Bible teaches. And again, so, again, just like we've talked about before, when it comes to doctrine, if there's something that you believe, but it doesn't agree with scripture, then you have to figure out why it doesn't agree. Right? You have to, you, and again, it takes digging. A lot of us look at it and we're like, eh, whatever. We look at the surface. You know, or it's like, well, my pastor taught me that, you know, God, it's God, we don't understand God's ways. And who are you to say the potter, or the, the clay to say to the potter, what are you doing and stuff? We just accept God's will. Rather than go into scripture and digging, because God wants us to dig in his word. Amen. He wants us to search it. He wants us to find who he is. And in 2 Peter 2, 
In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, it says, uh, he says, but let's see, let's, uh, let's start in verse 3. He says, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Um, so he's talking about destruction and stuff and for when they maintain this it has escaped so notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water but by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for for fire kept for a day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Look at this in verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Look at this. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so again, if you look at scripture, there are incongruities that that can't just be solved well God's ways are higher than our ways and his ways are so far above our ways that we can't understand them and stuff and uh, can you read it one more time the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance right. 1 Timothy 2 and in so, other words, he's delaying for the sake that more come to him. Right. So, Which implies <laughs> that if he were to come sooner, that some would not. Right. Implying that he, it's not just predetermined. Right. Right. And so what does it also imply? That people have choice. Yeah. Yeah. You have the choice of whether you're going to repent or whether you're not going to repent. Right. So, and, uh, and in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. It says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all in, who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, look at verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. John 3.16 In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I'd like to reread that because you read it wrong. Let me, let me try this. I read it wrong? Yeah, yeah. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the elect that he gave yeah. his only begotten Son that some who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's what it really says. And that's, no. that's, it's kind of funny because <laughs> no, actually not. Calvin taught that, that all doesn't mean all. 
all means the elect or all means certain classes of people mm -hmm. which is the elect and stuff and so again if you believe something false uh, you have to start picking and choosing right you have to start twisting this and twisting that you have to start taking this square piece and trying to make it fit in this round hole and it won't fit so I'm just gonna cut the edges off of it right and that's what it does and stuff and 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 so again it's either true or it's not true but it can't be both and when I read scripture when you read all of scripture like if you take certain verses it may sound like that right and that's the whole thing certain verses sound like that but again just like we said earlier if you read them in context if you take them with other verses if you if you look at them from a different perspective then then you know you'll see that they don't fit right and so what does it do? It causes us to search. It causes us to, to continue to dig, to continue to look for the answers because the answers are there. God put the answers in the word, in his word. The Bible says in 2 Peter that he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of his son, which is his word, right? And so God has given us his word so that, again, we can know who he is and that we can understand him. And again, Calvin says that God just died for the elect. The Bible says that he died for all. Who's right, Calvin or God? Hmm. Um, so turn to Romans 8, 28 again. So if God didn't choose just a few, in Romans 8, 28, it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknow knew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So, I believe that every scripture that talks about, I believe about that just about every scripture that talks about election, God's choosing, uh, God's uh, predestinating that he's speaking corporately not individually does that make sense yes when God says you were chosen he's not saying you Cindy were chosen or you Ruth were chosen even though you may be he's saying you the body of Christ so let's read, read that again he says in this um, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So anytime that you see those words about predestined and stuff, most, almost always it's in the plural. He's talking about you all, right? He's talking to the church. You, the church, were chosen. You people were chosen. Interestingly, so we are, we've actually been going through Ephesians. We looked at the verse in Ephesians uh, mm -hmm. 1 earlier, uh, but at Denton Bible, and they're very Calvinistic. Right. For, um, but it was interesting because even they were discussing, like, okay, so they, they were believing that that first chapter of Ephesians, that was referring to the individual. Right. But, but then they even said, without having a reason to believe that it transitioned, said that it transitioned to talking about corporate and Gentiles yeah. It, it, it's frequently talking about the Gentiles yeah and right. that's actually I feel like that's the most common we're actually going to talk about that too and stuff but like if you look in Romans in the first chapter you don't have to turn there but see who he's talking to he says to all who are beloved of God in Rome called as saints okay 
So again, turn to Ephesians 1. Read that one more time. To all who are beloved of God. In Rome, called as saints. That's the first So that is the called. He's speaking to the called, right? Called, chosen, elect, they're all the same thing, right? He's speaking to the called. So when he's talking to them, he's not speaking to individuals. He's speaking to them, the church. The letter was read read to everyone mm-hmm. in the assembly, mm-hmm. right? right? And so if I'm standing up and I say, you are the called, you are the chosen, I'm not speaking to you as an individual, mm-hmm. even though it is the individuals who make up the church, but I'm speaking to the, to corporate, the corporate body. Because right. it is a letter to the entire body. Right. Mm-hmm. In Ephesians 1. The thing is, I can't think of any verses like this. Not that they don't exist, but that are uh, that sound so um, elect, like uh, worded and such like that, and directed yeah. towards individuals. Well, this one in Ephesians, this is the main one that they that that they that they uh, use as kind of their foundation. And it also starts out Ephesians one to the saints who are right. at Ephesus. So right. Speaking so to he's the speaking, body of Christ in Ephesus. Right. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, again, notice that every, a lot of times when he says he chose us, he says that he predestined us for righteousness, or he chose us to do good deeds, or he chose us, in this one it says, he chose us in him that we would be holy and blameless before him. And I know so many people who, who, who say that they're chosen from God, but they certainly don't live a holy life and they're not living righteously. Uh, it's just like, um, you know, when I was, when I was in high school and, and I had already made a conscious choice to turn away from God, me and a, a, a good Baptist friend of mine, we were always getting drunk and partying and chasing girls and anything you can imagine we were doing it. And, and we were drinking one night, getting, we, we were drunk all the time. And I was telling him, man, if we died today, we would go to hell. And because he was brought up as a Baptist, as in, uh, not all Baptists are that way, but because he was brought up as a Calvinist, he's like, no, the Bible says that, you know, once you accept Jesus into your life, you're always saved and there's nothing you can do about it. You're going to be saved forever and, and, and nothing can take that away and stuff. And again, this is what people believe. Um, we we were um, on the we were sharing at a at a rock concert once. There was this uh, there was a guy who was a dealer. He was he was uh, I think um, selling LSD. And we were trying to, we were talking uh, about Jesus to him. And he says, Well, all I know is for God so loved the world that he said in his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should never die. Right. And so people that have no fruit, people and and that's why we teach these things because. Those people are the ones that are going to be standing before the Lord on judgment saying, day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? Didn't we even cast out demons in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And so knowing Jesus, being one of the elect, being one of the chosen is someone who knows him, who walks with him, who has a relationship with him. Um, in Ephesians 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father. Oh, wait, in verse uh, 5, He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to this kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, now notice how many times it also, also says, In Him. 
the predestination scriptures and the chosen scriptures, they always talk about in him. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us, again, speaking plural, the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him. You see that? So again, I believe that when it talks about election, he's talking to corporately. It's not talking to individuals. And Well, if you go on to Ephesians chapter 3, it talks all about that, which is this mystery which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men and is now being revealed to his holy apostles and prophets that, in, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and mm-hmm. fellow partakers of this promise in right. Christ Jesus. Yeah, and so again, he's speaking to the church, and, and we're going to get more into that and stuff in just a minute. But the thing is, 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 you know, over and over you see those scriptures, and they're saying, in him, in him. And if you want to break it down to its very essence, if you want to break it down to its very core, election is in Jesus. Jesus is the elect one. He is the chosen one. Turn to... Uh, Being grafted into the vine, man. Yeah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, and my chosen one in whom my soul delights. So he's saying, this is my chosen one, right? I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice or make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Who's that talking about? That's talking about Jesus, right? He says, he is my chosen one. Um, Turn to John chapter 1. In John 1, 33, starting verse 32, this is John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. He says, John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, Jesus. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon, this is the chosen one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So, and, and there's other scriptures that we could look at, but Jesus is the chosen one, right? You and I are not the chosen one. And Jesus is the elect one. He is the one that God elected. He is the one that God chose. And the thing is, is what we have to realize is that the scriptures that we're talking about, we are chosen, we are predestined in him and stuff, in him. It's only as we are in him. We are the church as we are in him, right? And so we become chosen as we are in him. If we're not in him, we are not the chosen, we are not the elect because he is the elect one, he is the chosen one, and it's only as we are in him that we are chosen or elect because none of us are righteous in ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. None of us are... can have the right to be that. He is the only one who can stand before God on his own merit and, and be without sin and be blameless and, 
And so we are only chosen as we are in him. Which that Ephesians 1, chapter 11. I mean, Ephesians 1, verse 11. Maybe after you get through, you want to bring up some verses that I've heard Calvinists use and see what you think about them. Okay. Turn to uh, Romans 3, verse 21. Also, I do think it's interesting, um, Isaiah 6. Like, I, I feel like that kind of shows kind of the heart of God in some respect because it's that vision that Isaiah had of the Lord. Right? Yeah. And, you know... So Isaiah saw his sin and was like, "Woe is me!" And then God cleansed him. And then, um, and then, and then the Lord called out in a vision that was given to Isaiah, "Oh, who will we send? Who will we send?" And I, and then uh, for for him, so that he could say, "Here am I, send me." But there's that call and response of, of a sort. There's that um, that that willingness on on his part to uh, be sent by God to mm-hmm. be cleansed by God. Yeah. Uh, turn to Romans 12, verse 4. And that's the thing. I, I know I'm skipping around all over the place, but there are so many scriptures. I mean, literally, there, there are so many scriptures that, that cover this subject. But in Romans uh, 12, verse 4, it says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So it's only, again, as we are abiding in Him. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians five verse seventeen says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new." And so, again, turn to John chapter fifteen. It's only as we abide in Christ, it's only as we are in Christ that we are the chosen, because He is the chosen one, and we don't get to heaven but through Him. We don't get to the Father but through Jesus. We cannot come on our own merits. We cannot come on our own worth. We cannot come on our own righteousness. It is only as we abide in Christ. And in Roman, or John 15, verse 1, says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Every branch in me, so this is not someone that's in the world. This is not someone, you cannot be in Christ unless you've been born again, right? Mm-hmm. He says, Any branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit, which may give you understanding about why all the things happen in your life that do, because God is pruning you so you can bear more fruit. Amen. He says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you cannot do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, now what's he talking about? Someone who was in him, right? Right. But now they're no longer in him. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. You see that? And so again, 
We have nothing of our own merits. There's nothing in us. We are in him. And if we are in him, we are the elect. We are the chosen. Um, again, we, we already saw how like when, when um, he, he wrote those scriptures, he was writing them to the church, right? Election is not individual, but it's corporate. It's the body of Christ, the church, the ecclesia, or the called out ones, right? And the thing about it is, is God has always had a chosen people, right? All throughout scripture, God has had a people on earth to represent him because Jesus was only here for three years in the flesh. But God has always um, chosen or called a people to represent him. Turn to uh, 2 Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter two. Are you guys worn out? Do y'all need a break? No, nope. we're good. Okay. First Peter two verse four. It says, uh, "I'll start in verse one. Therefore, putting aside so Peter's speaking to the church. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord." And coming to him as living as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious stone, Excuse me. and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for, is for you who believe, but the, for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, that stone became the very, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But look what he says in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God says you are a chosen people, and he's speaking this to the church. And this is the same thing that he said to the people in Israel in Exodus 19. And that's the whole thing. If you read the Old Testament, the whole reason why God called the Israelites is to have a people represent his glory. And so that the heathen nations all around could look at Israel and say, hey, I can look at these people and see what God is like. Right? But so often they failed. Right? They followed false gods. They followed idols. They, they, they sacrificed their children and... and in the flames and stuff, and, and they turned their hearts away from God, and, and, um, and God was pursuing them, but they kept on turning back. And, and, but see, that's the purpose of the church, right? That's what God has called us as believers. And this is what predestination is for. Because over and over, those scriptures that talk about you have chosen, been chosen to be holy and blameless, to be righteous before him and stuff. God has chosen us, the body of Christ, to represent him on the earth. We are to be his ambassadors. People are to be able to look at our lives and say, man, I can look at this person and see something of what God is like in them. 
And that's what the church is to be. And that's why we can't be that as long as we have scriptures saying, eh, don't worry about it. You know, once you've said the sinner's prayer, you're going to be saved and it's okay. You can live however you want to live. You can, you can screw around. You can get drunk. You can party. You can do whatever you want to do. You're still going to be saved. This is not what God wants for his people, right? This is not what God has, and that's, again, what the Israelites did in the Old Testament. They kept falling away from God and not representing him. And that's what doctrines like this do to the church. They say, well, you know, if you've been elected by God, it doesn't matter. He's going to save you. It doesn't matter, okay? Live however you want to live. It's grace. God's grace covers everything. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. All he sees is his blood. That's a lie from hell. You don't see it in the Bible. Now, is God gracious to us because of Jesus? Yes, he is. But it's only as we are living as that chosen people, as that pure and holy people who are representing him, as long as we're abiding in the vine, as long as we're bearing fruit, as long as we're bearing his image on the earth, right? That is the chosen one. That is the church. That is the people whom God has chosen and so. In Deuteronomy 28, 9, it says, even to the children of Israel who were his chosen, he says, the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Yeah. And that's a... Go ahead. And, and like in the... Like, and Jesus talked about how that's, a, that's our response right. to his love. Like, exactly. Obviously, like, sanctification doesn't come, like, from just our own inner self, like, without the work of the Holy Spirit. Right. Um, it's out of gratitude. Yeah, and and uh, Jesus said, "If you love me, you will follow my commandments." It's like we we love God and we want. It's like, it, you know, how how do you love your like in the same way as the like force like when you're for like just acting out of obligation, you're not truly loving. Right. How can you love and not truly do? Yeah, and Jesus said uh, about the the prostitute when the Pharisees were saying, well. The, the prostitute that washed his feet with her hair and poured the uh, perfume on his feet and the Pharisees are going, if he knew what kind of person this was, he, he wouldn't even touch her and stuff. He, he wouldn't have anything to do with her. And he said, to those who love much, or those who have been forgiven much, love much. And so it's because we've been forgiven, it's because of his grace, it's because of his mercy that we love him. We can't save ourselves, we can't work we can't do enough works to save ourselves. There's no righteousness that we can do this to save ourselves. But turn to Matthew chapter uh, 23. So again, the Israelites were chosen to be God's chosen people to reflect his glory, to reflect his nature, and to reflect what he's like. And let's see what Jesus says about them in Matthew 23, verse 37. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Look at this. Look at the heart of God. He says, I didn't predestine you to, to just be my chosen people. And, and because I predestined you, because I called you elect, then, then nothing's ever going to change that. He says, how often I wanted to gather your children together um, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are unwilling. He says, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. You see that? Turn to another place in uh, Acts chapter 13. In Acts 13, 44.
This is Paul and Barnabas, and, and they're speaking, and uh, it says, um, it says the next Sabbath, verse 44, nearly the whole city assembled to hear assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Look what he says here. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. You see that? So again, just like Amy was saying earlier, you really cannot understand election without understanding the fact that God had chosen the Israelites in the Old Testament to be his chosen people, to be his representatives on earth. They rejected that. And so he said, now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that's why in Peter, he says, you are the chosen people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Now what he's saying used to belong to Israel has now come to you Gentiles. And that's why over and over you'll see these scriptures that we we read about, you have been chosen, you have been elected and stuff like that. If you keep on reading further, it starts talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and how God has broken down that wall. And it's not that, and and whenever you teach about stuff, people will call you this kind of thing. People will call you replacement theologists. Oh, you're trying to replace the Jews with the church. We're not replacing anything. It is fulfillment theology. God has fulfilled everything that he planned in the Old Testament. This is what God destined. This is what he uh, predetermined. This is what he planned. He planned to have a bride, right? God has always wanted the bride. And so, and it's not leaving out the Jews because any Jew, that will, uh, any Israelite, they will turn from their sins. They will receive him by faith, turn from their wicked ways. They too are included. So they have not been excluded, and we're going to talk about Romans 9 through 11 next week, hopefully. But the Jews have not been excluded, but no Jew will come to Jesus, will be saved through their heritage. No Israelite will be saved because they were born in Israel. No human being will be saved because they were born in a certain locality upon this planet. Everyone that comes to God comes to him through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the door. And there is no other way. There is no other name under heaven or earth by which man has been given by which he must be saved. Right? And so God has not excluded the Jews, but... The church, his chosen people are those only the people of faith. Just like Abraham was in the Old Testament. He believed God. God reckoned it to him as righteousness because he believed, because of his faith, right? And it says, we who are the faith of Abraham are the sons of Abraham. Mm -hmm. It says he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Mm -hmm. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. Right. And so, and, and so for, for people that still stand by this, well, over in Israel, they're the chosen people of God. They do not understand scripture, okay? And not only that, but a lot of it is tied in with their end times belief. And because they believe, have this 
end times belief system, they have to tie in these false doctrines to make that happen because it will not happen without that. And, and they believe that, you know, the Jews are going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, that sacrifices are going to be reinstituted. And in the middle of that, the Antichrist is going to come and stuff like that. What a mockery to God. It is be. a mockery. It's like we're going from the the substance back to the types and the shadows and thinking that God is going to somehow be pleased with that. If the sacrifice of Jesus is not enough, anything else is blasphemy. Your faith is in vain. That's right. And your faith is in vain. And that's what a lot of the Old Testament was about. Was God, because people were still wanting to hang on to those things. They were still wanting to hang on to the temple. They were still wanting to hang on to the Sabbaths. They were still wanting to hang on to circumcision and, and the rites and the sacrifices and all that. And he's saying, if you do these things, your faith is in vain. Galatians. Right. And now and, again to a church. <laughs> yes, to church and stuff. And so... You know, we, again, the, the scriptures that we're reading in Matthew and Acts, these are choices that these people made. God didn't predestine them to it. God didn't choose this for them. Again, we saw Jesus' heart. Oh, how I long to gather you like hen, like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right. And so, again, the, the choosing scriptures are... Um, turn to Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. So when you begin to understand this whole dynamic of God bringing in the Gentiles, and that's the thing, because the Gentiles, to be told that you are the elect of God, the Gentiles were the person who was never chosen. The Gentiles were the person at the dance that stands by the wall all the time and no one ever asks that person to dance. The Gentiles were the person that, that wants to be on the basketball team, but they're too small and they're too skinny and, and no one will have anything to do with them, right? The Gentiles, and you, re, you see it over and over in the Old Testament, how, how the Jews, even like I was watching something on television the other day about when uh, they were excavating the Temple Mount. One of the first things that they excavated on the Temple Mount was a sign saying to the Gentiles who entered the courts of the Temple, if any Gentile enters in here, you will be killed. And just like you see in the New Testament, their hatred of the Samaritans, even Jesus' own disciples hated the Samaritans and they wanted nothing to do with them. This is how the Gentiles were treated by the Jews. They were excluded from the covenants. They were excluded from the favor of God. They were excluded from anything that had to do with God. And even if you were a God-fearing Gentile, you could not go to the temple and worship God. And so God, when Jesus died, he tore the veil of the temple in two and said, okay, now everybody can enter. If you come through faith, you are free in here. And that's what all these scriptures about being chosen by God and being, being one of his chosen ones, that's what it's about. You who were excluded are now included. Mm -hmm. You were chosen as adoptions of sin. Yeah. Galatians 3, verse 6. It says, having, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you, and he's again speaking to Gentiles here, the Gentile church, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Um, so then he who provides you with, spirit, with the Spirit and works miracles among you, 
um, do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure it is those who are the faith of faith who are sons of Abraham. And again, he is speaking to Gentiles here. He says in verse 8, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, who Abraham is considered the father of the Jews, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. You see that? So over and over in the New Testament, he's making that so clear. And in verse uh, 26, he says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For you, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So, again, God has done away with um, a chosen people from a certain locality. And he has opened the way for, for anyone to come to him, if you will come by faith. And, and again, that's the chosen people. That's the ones who God chooses. And uh, I think we'll just go ahead and end it there. Am I going to do part two next week? Yes. Yes.